following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, take the outline and follow along with us. When her mom asked her what her favorite Bible story was, without hesitating, the little girl said, Jesus turning the water to the wine at the wedding. And knowing that their home was immersed in the Bible and that she was quite familiar with all the events of Christ's life, her mom was really puzzled by her choice of that story, but she kind of went along with it. And she said, well, what did you learn, honey, from that event in the life of Christ? I mean, what did you learn? And it ended up being something that the mom had not even considered. In fact, the little girl replied, what I learned from that story is this. When you have a wedding, it's a good idea to have Jesus show up. Right? Right? It's true. And if you know Christ, you would say the same thing. Right? As the world's crumbling, as our government becomes more corrupt, as society presses harder against Christians, every single believer would say, it's a great idea if Jesus showed up. Right? In fact, that's exactly what he promises. You know that from the word. Jesus is coming again. In fact, he's coming to his wedding with his bride. The church, the bride of Christ, made up of every single born-again Christian. And one day we will see Christ the groom. He will come and return, and he will not merely show up. He will take over. He will take over. Now, that celebration is coming closer and closer and closer. And I know every generation said it, but I'm telling you, friends, it's closer and closer. Christ the groom is returning for his bride, and the wedding is coming. And would you agree it's a really good idea if Jesus shows up, right? No real born-again Christian denies the second coming of Christ. No genuine believer would ever say that, none. But a false teacher would make that claim in some manner, and a make-believer might even buy into that claim that he's not coming back. Satan, his demons, the fallen world and our own flesh have done a tremendous job of minimizing and mocking the second coming of Jesus. Who of us have not seen the comics or heard the comments or actually felt the contempt for our beliefs in the end of the world? right? How many times have you seen a man standing on the corner wearing a sandwich board, right, with the end is near in some sort of mocking cartoon? It's everywhere. It's never done seriously. Almost every portrayal of the people who believe in Christ's return, i.e. Christians, i.e. you, are viewed and pictured as insane, judgmental, murderous, psychotic, or just plain weird? Just plain weird. This is what the believers were facing in Second Peter. In a different context, but very much the same. They had false teachers attacking, belittling, and minimizing the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they lived in a world where Rome was so powerful they had conquered the known world. And to talk about another conqueror who actually controlled the world who was lord over Caesar, was almost astronomically insane to say that. 
because they were dominant of the whole, whole world. So to believe that Christ was the one who's truly in charge to the king, the Lord, over all other rulers, including Caesar, was a challenge. And then to believe that Jesus is the one who's running the world was definitely difficult to proclaim. Difficult, difficult. And then add the false teachers who are amongst the churches who were undermining the belief of the second coming. It made it all the more difficult for believers to hope in the second coming. So they're losing their hope and they're challenged on all fronts. And that's why Peter takes the entire last chapter of his final letter to talk about the second coming of Christ. He wants to reassure and bolster their belief in the second coming, that he's coming, and to correct the errant second coming claims of these false teachers. Now, I have been very passionate to get to this chapter. Have you noticed? I mean, I've been waiting for almost a year to get here, so I'm pretty excited, and this morning, I kind of want to give you an overview. So we're going to take a quick sweep through uh, as much of the chapters we can get through. Then we're going to go back through and take it kind of section by section, verse by verse, two verses at a time, and really dig in deep. But I want to just see the big picture today, okay, the sweeping picture, kind of an exciting picture. So I will spend more time on verses 1 and 2 and then 3 and 4 and etc. We'll work our way through this, but I want you to see everything that God has given us about his second coming. But I want you to see the big picture. This is called the flyover, right? The map. Uh, the, and later on, we'll land the plane and we'll start going exploring and looking at every cave and under every rock kind of thing and uncovering everything. Now, and I really want you to text questions about Christ, about the second coming, and nothing else, please. Okay, so, but text us and, and we'll answer them in upcoming sermons. We'll answer them in the weekly letter. We'll answer them also through Nigel Saturday and even on Sunday and you've got the phone number there, I think. Jesus Christ is coming back as the unchallenged Lord of this universe. Unchallenged Lord. And he will rule this planet for 1,000 glorious years. And we who are his children will be ruling with him in glorified bodies. And it's going to be the kingdom. It's going to be incredible. But it is a certain return. It is not only certain, but it's challenged by false teachers. But his coming is very clear in the scriptures, and his return is compelling. It's life-changing. So look at the chart in your outline, if you would, because that's going to be very important for you to see the order of the coming events. These events make up the doctrine of eschatology, the study of last things, eschatology. Basically, today, 2 Peter 3 is describing part of what makes up eschatology, the study of last things, or the day of the Lord. Have you heard that term? the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is simply defined as the rapture all the way to the end. The day of the Lord is God's future events. And you need to see that it's not a day, it's a God is now acting in his end time events, starting with the rapture all the way through heaven and hell, etc. And this entire chart, starting with the rapture and ending with the eternal state in heaven and hell, is describing the day of the Lord. All those events are the day. Now, this is God's future events. This is God's future plan for this planet. This is God's future plan for Israel. This is God's future plan for the church. And this is God's future plan for you, who are his children. And if you're not his child, he also has a future plan for you. Some of you come from a background where you pick and choose what your theology you want to believe. 
It's like a giant smorgasbord, and you go, oh, I like some pre-mill, and I take a little rapture, and you just kind of pick what you want. You know, oh, I like this. Oh, I like this view. I don't like that view, that kind of thing. Listen, at FBC, we kind of approach theology a little differently, and I want you to understand that. It's very important that you understand where our theology comes from. We believe that all theology is derived from the study of Scripture, that actually the Scripture, interpreting the Bible in a normal way, in a literal way, and normally, and just an understanding of what the author meant by what he said in the context back then with the grammar, etc., that, that basically we're seeking his one intended meaning for the original audience. If you approach Scripture in that manner, what I just described, a normal, historical, grammatical, contextual way, if you do that, you will end up with an eschatology that looks very, very similar, if not exactly what you have in that chart. If you approach all of Scripture that way, that's what you'll come up with. Trust me. It's, that's how it's built. It's a hermeneutical issue, a way you interpret the Bible. Not the theology that you pick, but the text itself drives our understanding, and it comes up with a normal kingdom. The Old Testament talks about a thousand-year kingdom, a thousand-year kingdom. The New Testament talks about a kingdom. We take that normally and literally, guess what? There's a kingdom. It's coming, etc. So, as a church, we don't succumb to the easy method of picking and choosing our theology, kind of as the, you know, the smorgasbord, but we determine our theology out of the Bible and through the hard work of exegesis, trying to seek the normal understanding of the word. As we do, we believe the scripture is very clear that there is a rapture, talked about three places in the New Testament. There's a tribulation, seven-year judgment that God's going to pour out his wrath on this planet. That there's a second coming, that Jesus is going to literally physically return as the King of kings and Lord of lords in his glorified form. A thousand-year kingdom, a final judgment called the great white throne, and an eternal state when heaven and earth will be together forever. This would be considered a premillennial understanding. That means that Christ returns prior, pre to the millennium. There'll be a thousand years where he rules, but he returns prior to that thousand years, pre-millennial. That's where it comes from. We don't believe that the scriptures teach or the Bible teaches that Christ comes post-millennial. That's after the kingdom. There are people that believe that. And that there are, you know, people who believe that there is no thousand-year kingdom or all millennial, no millennial, right? Those are the three major views, but we're normative here. We just think that it's premillennial, that it comes right out of the text. Now, in the final chapter, I have to tell you this because the final chapter of 2 Peter chapter 3 focuses on only one of those eschatological events, the second coming of Christ, the most important event, the second coming of Christ. That's the main event, the day of the Lord, second coming. And Peter, after the tribulation, Jesus returns to judge and to rule this planet in his kingdom, all right? And there is basically described in the scripture that all these end time events like the rapture, like the tribulation are in there, but the focus of 2 Peter is the second coming. He doesn't talk about the rapture. He doesn't talk about the tribulation, well, a little bit, but he only talks about the second coming. Are you getting it? So you want to make sure you understand that. But churches that Peter's writing to, they're wrestling with this central issue. In fact, that will Christ physically return to earth? And it's so important that all the various theological systems, if you're post-mill, if you're all-mill, if you're pre-mill, they all believe in a physical, literal return of Christ. You getting that? That's how important it is. Every system believes that there is a physical return of Jesus Christ to the planet. 
every system, it, unless it's a heretical system, unless it's a heretical system. So Peter basically teaches that Christ will literally turn to planet Earth. The fact is so foundational that if you don't believe in the physical second coming of Christ, you are not a Christian, period. That's how essential it is. That's how tied it is into the gospel. That's how central it is in Scripture. No one who is a genuine born-again Christian denies that Christ is physically returning to this planet. Because it is found in the Old and New Testament so extensively that you're basically throwing your Bible away. Let me make it even more clear. It, it, today, we're going to fly over these verses and get the general intent. And then in coming weeks, understand, we're going to cover the same ground, but do some digging. But you need to hear about the second coming. You and I need to hear about the end times. The day of the Lord is what makes today bearable for the struggling Christian. I mean, you know, look, it's bad, right? But it's, only, it's not as bad as other places on the planet, but it's bad. And if it gets worse, it's going to be, what's our hope? Every persecuted Christian church in the world is going, look, I want, I want to hear all about Christ. I want to hear about the word. But man, could you make sure you just remind us about that he's coming again? Because they're not enamored anymore. They can't wait for him to come. The end times exhorts you and I to live purely and, and really, basically this, are you ready? You don't want to be doing something that you're embarrassed when Jesus comes again. That's really what he's saying. You know? And the Bible actually lays that out. God's future plan helps you to understand what's going on in the world right now. Are things shaping up globally to you? Do you see any of that happening? Interesting stuff today, isn't it? Eschatology motivates you to make certain that your life counts for eternity. Because really, it, it measures through service and through giving and through elements that we can actually you know, in a sense, send ahead to eternity. You're longing for justice. Some of you are longing for justice. This is so unfair. This is so unright. And you're longing for that. The moment he returns, you will be satisfied. The moment he returns, all justice will be made right. All of it. In fact, the return of Christ strengthens your hope for the future. Some of you are very pessimistic about the future, but we have the ultimate hope. Do we not? The ultimate hope. And we can't lose that as Christians. In fact, it intensifies your love for the lost. It actually fires up your intimacy with the Savior. And ultimately, you know, you're looking from going from faith to sight. Are you not? We can't wait, as we sang just earlier, to see him face to face. Remarkably, all four points springing from the text this morning all start with the letter C. I don't know how that happens. This is for Christ's coming. So Christ's return is certain. The second coming is challenged by false teachers. The Lord's coming is clear. And the second coming is compelling you to live uniquely for Christ by the Spirit of God. Number one in your outline, the return of Christ is certain. Certain. Verses one and two. The proof of the return of Christ is based upon God's authoritative word. God's authoritative word. Listen to Peter's opening words of this final chapter, verses one and two. This is now, beloved, take a look, beloved, the second letter that I'm writing you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of what? Reminder, verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets beforehand and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter says, stirring up. He goes, I want to wake you up. How's that? Wake you up to remember. That's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what that verse says. Wake you up. Peter's trying to 
heat up the readers and you today to the importance of apostolic teaching and sound doctrine, which are being undermined by these false teachers. And Peter is giving you a loving shake. See, he says, beloved, that's a loving shake, right? You know, somebody wakes you up in the morning, they don't like you, it's not a loving shake, right? Somebody wakes you up in the morning and they really love you, it's a loving, tender little shake, right? Sort of. A kick in the pants, a bucket of cold water. Wake up, realize how serious this is. Do not ignore this, Peter is saying. Stir up, wake up. Don't coast in your Christian thinking here. Don't cruise here. Peter says, hey, Christian, some of you are doing this. You're forgetting how important the Bible is. You're forgetting and neglecting your Bible. You're sleepy when it comes to learning the word about the apostolic teaching here on this issue. You're not zealous about identifying and rejecting error. He's getting to them. He's passionately reminding them, stir. See that word, stir? Stirring up. This is way bigger than Peter. This is the truth of the living God. Truth of the living God. And look at verse 2. These truths about the coming day of the Lord with the second coming of Christ in judgment have been repeatedly taught by one, the prophets of the Old Testament. See it there, verse 2? Prophets of the Old Testament. And then Jesus Christ himself, his own commandment, and then the apostles in the New Testament. So who are the writers of Scripture? Are you ready? Write this down. The prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. Those are the God-ordained writers, and he's saying everywhere in the Scripture, it's talked about the second coming of Christ. Everywhere. Let's look at two of them. Just two. There are hundreds. Now, next week, we're going to look at a lot more. But look at two, if you would. Micah chapter 1, verse 3. For behold, the Lord is what? coming forth from this place and he will come down and tread on the high places on the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire like water poured down a steep place wow that's pretty severe would you agree look at matthew 16:27 for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and then every <laughs> repay every man according to his what his deeds. The return of Christ will change the entire planet and it will expose every single one of you for who you really are. Every single one. You can fake me out, but you can't fake Christ out, right? So he not only knows what you say, he also knows what you think. He also knows the motive behind everything you say and do. He knows us and that will all be exposed and all be evaluated. And Peter says, you're not rejecting me if you don't affirm the second coming of Christ, get this, you're rejecting the entire scripture. That's what he says by mentioning the prophets and the apostles. God's word, the entire Bible. If you reject, you know, basically God's word on the second coming, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God. The second coming is certain. It's guaranteed by hundreds of promises in God's never wrong, always right, living and active word, both in the Old and New Testaments. That's what he's saying. Look at it. Friends, if you reject the second coming, throw your Bible away. Throw it away. Because everywhere in the old, everywhere in the new, multiple, multiple, multiple times is the promise of the second coming. The promise. He will judge the nations. It's guaranteed. He will judge, are you ready for this? The governing authorities. Let me say that again. He will judge the governing authorities, all of them. He will judge the unrighteous. He will restore his people Israel. He will bless his bride, the church. That's your hope. This is your confidence. This is God's truth. 
Wow. If Christ's return is not true, you might as well live like a pagan and fight to get all you can, can all the rest, sit on the can and spoil the rest. You know what I'm saying? If this is not true, seriously, then this life is all there is. There is no eternity. So you better fight, live as gross as you want, impure, ungracious, unrighteous, just like the false teachers, just like them. But it is true, and it is certain, and it's established in the Bible. We just looked at two verses. There are hundreds of verses. Number two in your outline, the return of Christ is combated, combated. It's fought against. And again, here you have the arguments uh, given against the return of Christ by the false teachers in verses 3 and 4. Look at it. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. False teachers infecting churches. And listen, these are churches in Pergamum, in Sardis, in Thyatira, in uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus. These are all the churches in Asia Minor. And that's who Peter tells us at the beginning of his epistle here, who he's writing to, the churches in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And all these false teachers did, they did all they can to undermine the truth of the second coming for one reason. Anybody know what the one reason is? Why are false teachers fighting so that they would then somehow diminish or negate or basically remove the second coming? There's one reason. That's it. Have you figured it out? They don't want to be held accountable before God. That's it. This affects you. If Christ is truly returning as the judge of mankind, then you will have to give answer for how you lived your life, how you acted, how you spoke how you treated others, what you thought, what you said, what your motives were. But if Christ isn't coming back, then there's no one to answer to. There's no one to answer to. There's no one accountable to. There's no one holding you accountable. So the false teachers said everything they could in every possible way to try to prove that Christ is not returning at all, let alone as the judge of mankind. Now, in 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, he gives three reasons, the false teachers why they don't believe that Christ is coming back. These are their three main reasons given at least at that time. First, they ridiculed the second coming as if you're a nut to believe it. Ever felt that way? Jesus is coming back and people are like mocking you, right? That's what's happened. And that's what Peter means when he says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. The false teachers laughingly sneer at the truth that Christ will return, and they make fun of you. They are big, are you ready, on intimidation. We'll look at that next week. Number two, they live immorally. Immorally. They're trying to prove from their very lifestyle they're not going to be judged by Christ. They live how they want to live to assert that they won't be judged. See, look, it's a kind of a warped thinking, but they're saying, look, look what I'm getting away with now, man. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm this and that. I live like a total perv and whatever, and there's no judgment at all right now. So there's no judgment now means there's no judgment in the future, right? They're, they're demonstrating, I can get away with anything. And they're doing that, and that's what it says in the text there, following, verse 3, after their own lusts. They, they feel like getaway. Those who reject Christ want to live 
by their strong urgings, their desires, their lusts. They want to live immorally, fornicate, commit adultery, embrace perversion, divorce their spouse, get drunk, slander others, and do whatever they want. Whatever they want. But they can't live that way and still call themselves a Christian. So they want to think that they can still have salvation, but they don't want to have to answer to God. So they don't want to admit they're headed to hell, so they have to create a scenario, which is what they're doing here, a false belief where they can still enjoy sin, live by their lust, live in sin, and still be called a Christian. That's what they're trying to accomplish. But the false teachers can't live sinfully if Christ in all purity and holiness is going to come and evaluate their lives. The sinless one is going to evaluate them, right? So understand, and he's going to judge every detail of their lives, which he will, so they're mocking the second coming by giving, living as sinful as they can, following after their own lust, in an attempt to prove to believers around them that there's no consequences for their sin right now, and there's no accountability for their sin later, right? That's what they're trying to say. That's what they're trying to communicate. Because in their minds, Christ isn't coming back. He can't come back because then we'll be accountable. We don't want that. So they live by their lust. Number three, they taught, and I love this word, uniformitarianism, right? You just go home and say that three times and you feel smart. Uniformitarianism. Look at verse four. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, John Piper writes uh, from another commentator, quoting this other commentator, and he makes this statement. Look at it in your notes there. This is an amazing modern argument for rejecting the supernatural bodily second coming. It simply says the laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun has come up and it goes down. The seasons have followed each other. The tides have risen and fallen for a thousand years in perfect order. Therefore, we must expect this constancy for the future. And any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with global fiery judgment by the returning Christ is unmanageable and unwarranted. This is exactly the position of much of modern science, and there are hundreds of pastors, theologians, and churches and seminaries today who reject a physical second coming and future judgment for the very same reason. This is heresy, and this is the same heresy that you hear taught in the secular classroom. This is the same heresy you see affirmed in movie after movie after movie. This is the same heresy displayed in almost every museum that you visit. I know of one exception. The declaration that science proves that the earth is millions of years old and that the earth is constant, functioning back then just like it has today, day after day, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia. It has always been the same. It's always been uniform. It's always been consistent. Friends, that is not science, and it's absolutely wrong. It's not science. The false teacher doesn't want you to believe that God has radically interrupted the normal course of history. They don't want that. With a global worldwide flood, which covered the entire planet with water, or made the sun stand still, or radically changed regions with earthquakes and volcanoes, etc. The false teacher instructs that nothing has changed in the past, so nothing will change in the future. Uniformitarianism. The false teacher believes that just as the sun comes up every day, it will come up exactly the same in the future. Therefore, they teach that Christ is not coming back. It's not going to blacken the sun in Revelation. 
and he's not going to, if you read the end of Revelation, not even need the sun anymore, right? That's what the Bible teaches. These immoral so-called spiritual leaders hate the idea of Christ's return because they don't want to even, even for a moment consider that they would be judged for their immorality and their sins. They don't want to. But Peter fights back with number three in your outline, the return of Christ is clear. It's clear. These are the arguments for the imminent return of Christ in verses 5 through 10. Peter's already affirmed that the living word of God has guaranteed the return of Christ in verses 1 and 2. And now Peter destroys the false teacher's arguments against the second coming of Christ with three additional proofs starting in verses 5 through 10 here. And the first one is the pattern of history proves God interrupts the natural course, verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7, Peter refers to three historical events which prove that God's in charge and can interrupt history anytime he chooses. Verse 5 refers to, one, the creation of the universe, right? Was that dramatic, <laughs> you think? Uh, look what he says in verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Peter's being a little sarcastic here. That by the word of God, by the will of God, by the person of God, by what God designed, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water. The first thing the false teachers overlook is this world made by God, and that is the very order and material all hangs on his word, his will. You realize that, right? That the Bible, New Testament, Colossians, affirms the fact he holds everything together. I mean, it's not just that he made it, but he holds it together. And it's his word. It's not evolution. It's by God's word. And the laws of nature are not absolute. Christ holds all things together. And when he determines to interrupt his own creation, he will do so. Uh, you see this all the time with your kids, right? Or if you're babysitting, okay? And they're playing with Play-Doh. Remember how they play with Play-Doh? They create something. They make a sun or they make a spider or whatever. And in a moment, what do they do? Smash! Remake, right? All right? Because they're the creator, they have the ability to do that, Correct? Well, that's the same thing with our God. He has the ability to enter in and to change. He created the world. He sustains the world. He will judge this world. And the Bible says he will redo this world. He will redo this world. Verse 6 refers to the universal flood. Again, we're doing a flyover today. A lot more here. Past judgment has already happened that radically changed this planet. It's not uniformitarianism. It's radical change, cataclysm. Look at verse 6. Through the word... Uh, which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with what? Water. The whole world. False teachers ignore this world has not continued as it did from the beginning. And Peter argues that God brought about uh, on the world a flood in Noah's day with such a great upheaval that the natural flow of all events was altered. Everything, did it not dramatically change after the flood? I mean, our whole climate Animals, environment, longevity, all that radically changed because of that cataclysmic event. And then seven, future judgment will happen. He says in verse seven, but by his word, do you think Peter's trying to establish the fact that God is the one who created? I'm trying to be overemphasizing here. By his word, in his word, God has willed for this to occur. This is God's decision, God's creative act. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of what? Ungodly men. Just like God judges with water in the past, he will judge with fire in the future. That's his argument. God demonstrated he can and alter the course of 
history in judgment. In the past, he was judged in, by water in verse 6, and now in verse 7, he will judge with fire at the coming of Jesus Christ. And if the false teachers were not so blinded by living with their own immoral lusts, they could see that it's foolish to deny the future cataclysm of Christ's coming just because the course of this world has been so constant for so long. Under, understand, you say, Chris, okay, I get all that. What's God waiting for? I mean, I would like his coming to be now, right? Anybody now? Maybe you're single and you want to be married yet, but now, okay? Not just history, but he says, secondly, the profoundness of eternity proves God is orchestrating history. The profoundness, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a, what, thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, Peter's answering the criticism, Christ is delaying. Why is he delaying so long? You can't really believe he's coming back because, it, I mean, he hasn't come for, for so long. But Peter says, you will not waver about his return if you saw eternity from God's perspective. Look at eternity from God's perspective. From God's experience of time, it hasn't been long at all, correct? Now, some of you who are older might understand this even a little bit better than some of you who are younger, but I think all of us get it. Uh, the more you say, the older you get, the more you say, you know, it seems like yesterday I was a junior high pastor, right? And it was a millennia ago. It just seems like yesterday I, I married Gene Mueller 40 years ago today. Oh, yeah. Seems like yesterday our kids were just little kids, and now we got grandkids that are older than the little kids. How did that happen? See, it has a time perspective. You, you see what I'm saying? A time perspective. And then the more joyful you are, the more time passes quickly. Correct? Now, now you know this. You've been in a one-hour meeting, and you felt like you aged a decade. <laughs> right? I've been in some like that. I'm like, please stop talking. I'm done. And then you've been on a two-week or a three-week vacation that was so full of joy, it seemed like it was a half day or even an hour, right? That's God's perspective. God's eternal, so there's no age perspective there. And in a sense, he's not limited by that at all. And God is the, the God of joy. And so how could he not think that Christ has just arrived by his right hand and is today or yesterday and is returning tomorrow in his perspective. You see what I'm saying? If you saw eternity the way God looks at it, you'd see it totally different than we do. He hasn't delayed, just it's an eternal perspective that we're looking at. So it's history, eternity, and then I love this, the depth of God's character proves that God is orchestrating history. The depth of his character. And who you would only be tempted to believe he is not returning if you have a low view of God. And Peter responds to the problem of Christ's delay in verses 9 and 10, and he says this. Look at verse 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Look, he's not slow, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Christ isn't delaying his return because he's indifferent, because he's powerless, or because he's distracted. 
No, Christ is waiting to return because he's merciful. Write that down. He is waiting on his return because he is merciful. He is waiting until all his chosen sheep are safely in the fold of his care and not one is left out. Not one. His, he delays so elect sinners might come to repentance. Raise your hand, if you would, right now, if you were saved in the last 15 years. Can I see your hands? Come on, put them up. Put them, look around you. Last, he was waiting for you. Now, in reality, he was waiting for all of us, all of us, to come to faith in Christ, to come to repentance. Now, who is not saved? Don't raise your hand, okay? Just turn to Christ, because it may be that he's just waiting for you and you're the last one in the fold, and once you get saved, then we can all go home. So get on with it, would you? Come on. Surrender to Christ. Cry out for Him to give you a new heart so you can respond to Him, in a sense, hate your sin and turn to Him to repentance, and then rely on His death and His burial on your behalf and His resurrection by faith, and then follow Him as your Lord and Master. And then we could all go home if you're the guy. You better hurry, verse 10, because he's coming unexpectedly like a thief in the night, and everything will be judged by fire, burned up completely and made new. And what will the second coming do to you? Number four in your outline, the return of Christ is compelling. It's compelling. Christ's soon return motivates believers to live godly. The exact opposite of the false teacher. They want to believe they're not going to be judged, they're not accountable for how they live, so they live as lustfully and immorally as they possibly can. True believers expect Christ to return at any moment, then he will evaluate our lives. Therefore, we seek to live as godly and God-honoring a lifestyle as possible. And that's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Take a look at it. It's compelling. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's saying this is compelling for us to live holy. Look for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed with burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. One day, very soon, the universe is going to be completely destroyed. Under the judgment of God's wrath, the universe will melt away in a holocaust of incredible intensity. For God's enemies, it is an absolute nightmare. And an unstoppable. There is no way you can stop this from happening. Any more that you can stop, you know... <laughs> the world from being created. It's an inescapable nightmare. For God's children, it is the fulfillment of every hope and dream you've ever had. It'll be far more satisfying, far more gracious, far more loving than you can even dream up. On those days when you're ecstatic with love and ecstatic with joy, that's nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. Every dream ushering in the beginning of, yeah, of God's rule on earth, followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And that's why 1 John 3, 3, look at it, says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Those who want to be with Christ will seek to live like Christ. Those who want to be with Christ will seek to live like Christ. There's so much more in this chapter. We have just literally flown over. We have not undercovered the rocks we have not established every truth that's here. You just got an overview. And if you want to get more excited about Christ's return and really understand what will happen and how it matters today and how it matters to you, then you have to come back next week. So 
what we're left with? What are we left with? Well, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So letter A, are you ready for death and judgment? Are you ready for death and judgment? If you're hanging on to your life, you're not ready. If you've surrendered your life, you're ready. Um, recently, a friend of mine said, Chris, you're really flippant about COVID-19. I go, no, I'm not. I'm not flippant about COVID-19. I'm not. He said, well, then you're flippant about death. And I go, no, I'm not flippant about death. I'm flippant about the fear of death. Because no Christian should ever fear death. Not if you're in Christ. There's no fear. It's the doorway for your greatest joy and love and satisfaction. It's, it's the path to face-to-face communion with Christ forever. You should never fear death. Uh, you know, there, that's, that's my response to what's happened. Our world has gone crazy, absolutely crazy, because people are afraid to die. We should be the ones going, bring it on. Not that you're flipping about it, but realizing you get to be with Christ forever. They only face a horrible eternal torment. We, absolute divine eternal bliss. It's way different. And you, all you need to do is believe in Christ, that He is God, who was born a man, lived a perfect life, then suffered and punished on the cross for your sin, rose from the dead, you agree with Him, confess your sin, you follow Christ as Lord, you will have to answer before Jesus Christ, for your life, you will. He will be the perfect judge. Are you ready? The only way to be declared perfect is to have his perfect righteousness covering you and your sin fallen on Christ. That's the only way. Letter B, the ignore Christ's return. To ignore it when you don't think about it means you're distracted with this world. Distracted. The false teachers are completely given over to this world. But you know what, Christians, can we not, would you admit it? We can drift toward the world, can we not? Our time is here, our money is here, our activity is here. We think about it constantly. Our work is here sometimes. And we lose the importance of our true love, our first love, our true treasure, our forever eternity. Ask yourself, does your life truly reflect, truly reflect the certainty of Christ's soon coming? Not only in the way you live so you're not embarrassed when he comes, but also your longing and your priorities, and your relationships, and your finances, and your time, and your service, are they all geared toward loving and living for His reward, and longing to hear His words, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't miss the next line. Enter into the joy of your master, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the return of Christ. We pray, Father, that it would be today. And Father, if not, then we would live in such a way that we would anticipate it more and more each day, loving you and hoping in you and rejoicing in what's awaiting us in eternity. And Father, we cannot wait to see you face to face. And Father, until that day, may we be faithful to live by faith in every aspect. And Father, if there are any here who don't know you, would you begin to really work on their hearts? Awaken them and draw them to yourself and for the rest of us that we really be mindful of this, not just 
that we would hear a message uh, or truth about Christ coming, but we would ask ourselves, is it true of me on a daily basis? Am I hopeful? Am I anticipating? Am I trusting that you're going to take care of evil? And not only that, that we'll get to be with you. And Father, we pray that you would be honored with our response, which is the way we behave in offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. We pray that you'd be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.